Matthew and Travis. On this Labor Day, our scripture reading from Paul is Paul telling us that we have a job to do. Now, this is Paul's letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome. But remember, a church is not a building, it's a group of people. So this is a letter to a group of people, and Paul is sharing them with them the radical nature of what he's asking the followers of Jesus in Rome to do. It's the biblical concept of love and how radical it was to the kind of world that they lived in 2,000 years ago. And still today, it's easy to lose track of what we're called to do. Listen to these words and let us listen for God's word in the midst of it. Romans 13, 8 through 12. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the, the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Have you ever run out of ideas for what to make for dinner? Whenever it's my night at home to cook for dinner and I'm out of ideas, I always just stand at the refrigerator with the doors open and look at all the available ingredients that are there for me to use. And then when I've received some kind of inspiration, I usually take out my phone and I type out all those ingredients and just see what kind of recipe might pop up using those things that I see in front of me. One night I typed in chicken, sun-dried tomatoes, feta cheese. And a whole bunch of recipes popped up and then I started looking through them to make sure that I had all the ingredients to make each one of those recipes. And then of the ones that I could make, I started looking at the reviews. You know, those five stars that people make the recipe and then they chime in on how they feel about the recipe. And if I see one that kind of has a general trend of excellence, then I start to read the outlier uh, reviews. You know, those one-off, the two and three star reviews in the middle of all the five star reviews. And as I was reading one particular review, I found myself at first entertained and then puzzled and then downright indignant. It was a three star out of five stars review and it went something like this. This recipe was very disappointing. It turned out to be a soupy, gloppy mess with no flavor whatsoever. And then it went on to read like this. 
I didn't have any feta cheese, so I used cheddar cheese. And I don't like sun-dried tomatoes, so I used a can of stewed tomatoes. And on and on and on with substitutions. And I was thinking, who are you to give this person what amounts to a C grade when you didn't even make their recipe? Now, I suspect we're all guilty of something similar. Adding opinion in matters where we have no experience, where our words aren't helpful. The person making this recipe without the right ingredients is not unimportant. It's not that we should discount them as a person or dishonor their voice, but their opinion does not bear the same weight on the issue. They're just not helpful in this instance. They're engaged in the wrong conversation. They didn't make the recipe, so their opinion just isn't that important here. But that's where we find ourselves right now. Right now we're being bombarded with voices. Everyone can so easily share their opinions whether they know anything about the issue or not. It's hard to tell the experts from the people who seemingly just live to antagonize. We're not always sure who to listen to, whose voice is most important. Is it the one that sounds the most civil, the kindest, the loudest, the one using the biggest words or talks the longest? How do we know who's making the recipe with the right ingredients? And then we find today's scripture. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. I recently started an anti-liver campaign. Now hear me out. From childhood, I've had an aversion to the taste and texture of liver. It's the one food I just can't eat. My parents will probably be watching the 11 o'clock service this morning, and they'll be nodding their heads in agreement at this point in the service. Beef liver, chicken livers, goose pate, it doesn't even have to have liver in it. If it tastes like liver, I just can't. Now, I haven't given up hope. A few years will go by and I'll think, I'm going to give those delicious-looking bacon-wrapped chicken livers a try. It's wrapped in bacon and dripping in sauce. It must be good, right? But no. Not long ago, my, co- my co-workers and I were trying to decide where to eat lunch, and someone said, how about Patrick's? And I responded, no, it's Wednesday, to which they replied, so? See, on Wednesdays, one of the specials at Patrick's is liver and onions. And I tried my best to make a compelling case for why I shouldn't have to be in a restaurant on the day that liver is being served. And after the novelty of the conversation wore off, eventually I was told, we're going to Patrick's. You don't have to go with us. And there might have been a get-over-yourself thrown in there as well. Which is the right response. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean I've earned the right to tell others what to do. Sure, sometimes we do have to hold our neighbors accountable in love, But in this case, it's others holding me accountable for my intolerance. Too often we don't show love to our neighbor because we don't like them. 
We don't agree with them, who they are, what they do, how they act. We use that as an excuse for why we don't extend love or even civility. We convince ourselves we don't have to follow the command to love because there are extenuating circumstances. See, my opinion in the liver conversation is not important unless someone is asking me what I would like for dinner. In which case, my answer should be more eloquent than something besides liver. Instead of chiming in our opinions on societal issues that ultimately have little impact on us, except that for whatever reason we don't like it or that it makes us uncomfortable, we in fact should be championing the cause because it is important to our neighbor. To keep the liver theme going, love says we should be willing to go to a restaurant on Liver and Onions Day if that's what our neighbor needs. I'll say it again. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. When the Apostle Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, he's calling us to a higher order of living. Now, to understand Paul's full treatment of love, we need to look at 1 Corinthians 13, where we discover the following. All other gifts are worthless without love. Love is, I bet you know this, patient and kind, not jealous, not arrogant, not rude. It does not seek its own interest, is not irritated, does not reckon things wrong, does not delight in wrongdoing. Rejoices in truth, puts up with all things, believes all things, and never fails. Love lasts and is superior to all other things. All of which is summed up in verse 13. Faith, hope, and love remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is about a life of grace that values all human life as sacred. It's impossible to treat as objects those whom we see as persons of sacred worth. The homeless person we pass on the street, the impoverished children in whose neighborhoods we drive through, the victims of war whose faces we see on the news, they're all brothers and sisters to whom we owe our love and service. When we view life with the mind of Christ, consumers become stewards. Possessions become opportunities. Money becomes instruments of service. And people become our priority. The Christian life is lived with the mind of Christ. Especially right now, the voice we should be listening to is the one that sounds like Jesus. But so many of the voices we hear don't sound like Jesus. Some of the voices are angry. But some of the voices that are angry right now are angry because too often they've been ignored. Let's admit it. It's difficult to live in a time like we live in now where some of society's long-term inequities are being exposed. To find ourselves confronted with systems we never built but that gave us an advantage over others. To find out that maybe we had it wrong or that at the very least we got complacent. 
Surely we can't be surprised that those most affected by society's inequities are more likely to feel urgent about seeing change. Which highlights the problem that we don't know what's ultimately good for our neighbor because too often we've stopped listening to what they've been saying or we haven't allowed them the right venue from which to share their voice. Whenever I'm planning a vacation, I often go to TripAdvisor to look at reviews on hotels. And one time, I saw a review on a brand new resort that just looked amazing. And one of the reviews was a two-star out of five review, that outlier again. But it said, beautiful resort at the top. And the review went something like this. The grounds are immaculate, the staff is amazing, the food is delicious. Every afternoon, the pool staff brings out chilled towels scented with mango for you to wipe down your face and neck. The place is outstanding. On the day we checked in, I found a long black hair in the bathtub. We will never stay there again. <laughs> now, it may have been a harsh review, but it didn't matter because I knew where they were coming from. They told their story. And they told a story of a beautiful resort where housekeeping had overlooked a hair in the bathtub. And now I'm able to make an informed decision on whether this is the kind of place I would like to visit. Frederick Buechner said, when Jesus comes along saying that the greatest command of all is to love God and to love our neighbor, he too is asking us to pay attention. If we are to love God, we must first stop, look, and listen for him in what is happening around us and inside us. If we are to love our neighbors before doing anything else, we must see our neighbors. We must see not just their faces, but the life behind and within their faces. Here it is love. That is the frame we see them in. We have to give people an opportunity to tell their story. And when someone is telling their story, we have to be willing to listen. Listening to someone's story is in itself an act of love. Once we know where someone is coming from, we feel more connected to them. And to those people to whom we feel connected, we're more likely to be willing to sit down at the same table because we understand them. So then, what is our task? How and when do we do it? Sure, living in a time of pandemic, the rules of how we show love to our neighbors has changed. But living life on hold is just an excuse for doing nothing. And lest we forget, there's a time limit. We're on the clock. Paul says, you know what time it is, how it is the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live in the light, let us love in the light. There's an urgency, no time to waste. 
I've been singing those words of the trio sing last week over and over and over again in my head this week. In whatever time we have. Now is the time. You and I are uniquely placed here now to love our neighbors. I saw a Chase Bank commercial this week and the tagline was bank from virtually anywhere. And the message was, you don't have to go to a building anymore to do your banking. And I thought, you know, we pulled that off too. The church did that. Emmanuel is a church that is virtually everywhere. We have live stream that goes out across the world. We do Zoom calls with the choir where people join in from other states on a weekly basis. We have Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all the other things that I'm already behind on. And as soon as we old people get on one platform, the young people flock to another. And sure, some people use technology to spread hate and intolerance. But we can counteract with messages of acceptance and love. Many of you, my wife Robin included, have a ministry of encouragement that you lead through Facebook, rising above, above the fray and sending out messages that remind people that they're loved, but maybe even more importantly, that they've been heard. There are countless other ways we can communicate Jesus' love without ever leaving our living rooms. Every time we move toward the light of God, we are moving deeper into the kingdom of God. There's something else we're doing for our neighbors. Last Sunday, we had a groundbreaking. And you may have noticed as you came in this morning that things already look different out there. But there's great symbolism in this new structure that's being built. Because the front corner of the building, the part that juts out into the neighborhood, that provides the easiest access into our facility is a room specifically designed to connect to our neighbors. It's where the food pantry ministry moves. It's the room that provides extra space to expand our Alcoholics Anonymous meetings that have been bursting at the seams for years. It's where the Kirby Woods Garden Club and the Green Trees Neighborhood Association will hold their gatherings. And maybe we'll start teaching English as a second language there, or offering community Bible studies, or legal aid, or doing vision checks. The possibilities are limited only by our imagination and our willingness to do it. The front corner of our building can be a place where life intersects with Scripture. A lighthouse, a beacon that helps guide others toward the light and love of Christ. But we will need people, you people, actively engaged in hospitality, welcoming people in, not just waiting for them to find us, but seeking out neighbors and letting them know that this is a safe place for them, a loving place. And we don't have time to waste. There's an urgency. We have exactly one year to figure it all out before we have the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Any successful church, just like any successful recipe, starts with a combination of the right ingredients. Does it look and sound like Jesus? 
Does it listen to the needs of and welcome in its neighbors? And is it seasoned with love? May God give us the courage to bear witness to the hope and the love that is born within us this day. Amen.